Sometimes when people go on holiday, they get, they ask someone to house sit for them. And the idea is that these people take care of your home and make sure it runs and things get used properly while you're away. And now imagine you've done this and someone, you have someone's house sitting for you, but when you return, they have rearranged all your furniture. You're obviously shocked that this person would have the gumption, as we say in the American South, to mess with your home. I mean, it's yours. Why in the world are they, are they rearranging the furniture in your place? It should not matter if their friends like this layout more than yours because it's your house. You decide how it's supposed to look. The point is that just like it would be unacceptable for your house sitter to rearrange your house according to their preferences, so too it would be unacceptable for Christian ministers, the stewards of God's church, to organize the church or enact their duties out of accord with what God has described in Scripture. And it would be wrong also for people in the church to expect ministers to do something other than what God has said in his word. When Jesus Christ comes back, he will assess, as this passage we have read tells us, whether ministers have led the church in accord with what he said in scripture or if we've rearranged his furniture. So since chapter 1, verse 17, Paul has explained that Christian ministry is not supposed to be determined by human standards, but must be focused on claiming the plain gospel message without concessions to rhetorical demands of pagan society. And the the Corinthians have been wrong to rank their teachers and align themselves with the specific teachers according to which ones they thought were most prestigious. And so Paul indicated in chapter 3 that God is the divine patron, the one who sponsors or pays for the building of the temple. He owns and sets the blueprints for his temple, the church. And so he determines what it is supposed to be and even how it is supposed to be constructed. And then in verses 3, 8, or sorry, chapter 3, verses 18 to 23, Paul applied that point that he'd been developing to the Corinthians themselves. And now in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, as he began to move this section towards its culmination, Paul applied these points to how they should consider their ministers. So he applied it to them, now he applies it to the way they think about their ministers. And the point is that God will assess ministers according to the standards he set for the church and himself measure their faithfulness. So the main point this evening from this text is only God's opinion of us is ultimately important, so we should listen to the scripture. Only God's opinion of us is ultimately important. So we should listen to the scripture. We're going to think about this in three points. The responsibility, the response, 
and the reward. So, first, the responsibility. And I want to be really clear from the outset, this passage's practical relevance for everyone concerns what the church, namely those who lead her, is expected to do and what standards we use as we think uh, think through best practices as a Christian ministry. We have to remember that <clears throat> this, this passage is running right out of Paul's assertion in verse 23 that we are Christ's. So we belong to him and he is our master, so we no longer invent our own course of life. This passage exhorts us to consider what we want from the church, what we want the church to be, what we want it to be doing, and how we measure those desires. So in verse 1, Paul gave the basic idea that he then explained in the following verses. So verse 1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. So here's the, here's the thing. Okay, Paul's emphasis was on servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. I think most people read uh, this and leap to emphasizing ministers as servants and stewards, which is true, certainly, but not the emphasis here. Here are the modifiers of servants and stewards are the main point. Ministers are servants who belong to Christ. And Christ's servants must steward, care for, oversee the distribution of God's mysteries. And as we saw earlier in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 to 13, and elsewhere in verses like Ephesians 3, 3 to 6, God's mysteries are His plan to redeem, his plan of salvation to redeem a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation by the work of Jesus Christ. In other words, divine mysteries are the gospel message that we could not know had God not explained them to us. So Paul's point to the Corinthians then was that ministers are not their servants, Ultimately, and they do not steward what they want, but rather Christ and what he wants. One of my most influential seminary professors was a man named, is, he's still around, thankfully, a man named R. Scott Clark. And he once talked about the nature of ordination to ministry. And he said, when, when men lay hands on you and you make your ordination vows, you work for Jesus. You don't really work for them. You don't even ultimately work for the church. You work for Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, and he knew this and meant this, the work for Jesus is in the church. But his point was that the church as a group doesn't define right and wrong or what we're supposed to do in ministry. They don't define it. They enact it. They don't define it. Rather... My job is to do what God has said. He is the divine patron. I'm just a worker. 
following his blueprints to the best of my ability to build his temple as it was outlined by God's overseen apostolic architects. If we think back to earlier in chapter 3 and what that meant. Ministers work for Jesus and are meant to manage and administer the things that God has revealed in Scripture that we can't discover by nature is gospel mysteries. We can't, we can't go out and measure the sky. We can't go out and look at the rocks and find out the gospel. We have to receive the gospel and the best way to administer it from what God has indeed said to us. And this becomes really clear as Paul began to unpack that his, uh, that his point in the following verses. So verses two to three are the central idea of Paul's entire argument here. These verses unpack the idea established in verse one and, and set the premise on which verses five, four and five build. So verses two and three, if you'd read those with me. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. So the more precise relevance that, that ministers belong to Christ and steward God's mysteries is that they are accountable to be found faithful to that. First Corinthians 3, 10 to 17 explained how God has revealed a blueprint for what his church has to look like. And if ministers deviate from that outline, their, their work will be destroyed. Their work will be destroyed when Jesus returns, even if they are saved. Which is a terrifying thing. They, they may be saved, but all their labors may have proved useless. There is a reason why James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The responsibility is that those called to ministry have to be faithful in laboring for what God wants and working according to how He wants it. That brings us to our second point, the, the response. So we saw how, okay, yeah, the, the, the first point was about how Paul knew that Christ is the master over ministers and ministers must be found faithful according to Christ's wishes. Ministers can't rearrange the furniture in Christ's house while he is bodily away from us, interceding for us in heaven until his return, not even because the church body wants things up. There's a reason why the illustration included your friends like it better, right? And it's because even if the church thinks that it is better otherwise, we can't deviate from the scripture. Paul explained in verse 3 that it was a small thing that the Corinthians had a negative opinion about him. And the point as following everything else he had said was clearly that the the Corinthians' opinion was just like a fraction of useless to him. Since he is measured by his faithfulness to Christ rather than their wants. Which is a, a brave thing to say. Paul was not even worried about what any human court 
might say about him. He must be found faithful in the divine courtroom. The fact that he was not interested in any human opinion is why he didn't even judge himself. He knew his own opinions were not the standard to assess his labors. And so this point, that's catching us up. Yeah, reviewing this point then focuses on how we ought to think about the standards for our lives. So Paul was discussing faithfulness in Christian ministry We get that, but we can extrapolate some principles to apply to anyone in any vocation. So, how do we assess our own lives? Last time we were in this book, I emphasized how the authority of Scripture is an issue of sanctification. So, okay, I don't want to recycle material needlessly, needlessly, Uh, but it's worth repeating that point, and it's still pertinent as an application from this passage. We are really good at rationalizing our decisions. We think that if we can think of any reason for what we do or for what we believe, that excuses it. And that's not the case. And those thoughts show we've actually forgotten the standard. God's Word describes the standards, whether we be professional ministers or God has called us to any other vocation. Here, yeah, here's the thing. The Bible tells ministers exactly how to do their job in a way it doesn't for airline pilots, carpenters, bankers, or, or stay-at-home moms in many ways. Um, yeah, so don't Try to use the scripture to learn how to fly a plane, if that is your job. Uh, You should take lessons. But the scripture does speak about how to order our lives generally for, for any vocation. So, for example, this is just one of the most convicting passages in the Bible. I I sort of hate reading it, which is exactly why I know I have to um, and do it often. So, for example, Philippians 2, 14 to 16... Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you might be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I might be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Isn't it strong? I mean, we, we ponder this notion of being lights in the world, salt and light. And I think we make it into something very grandiose, something very shocking. And Paul says, if you want to be a light shining in the middle of a dark, crooked generation, don't grumble or complain. Be grateful for what you have, and that'll do it. In whatever calling we have, we should not primarily think about if we are satisfied with our work. I get that that's a legitimate category. I'm not saying there's an important word primarily in there. We should think about 
if we conducted ourselves according to God's word in whatever capacity it addresses our vocation. Because we should be seeking ever-increasing conformity to the scripture, even in areas where we may already be broadly aligned with it. So we don't rely on our own assessment of ourselves because we are not the standard by which our labor are measured. I'm fine. It's okay. I'm basically doing the right stuff, trying my best. What if we considered it in light of the scripture anyway? What if we checked ourselves? And Paul gave the reason for this in verses 4 and 5. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Just because you think you've done well doesn't make it true. That's what Paul says. We're not acquitted by our own assessment, but by Christ's. And don't really care. Like, pay, like, if you've drifted off, here's the, maybe the one thing worth listening to. Uh, this, I mean, read it carefully. This passage is not about your salvation. Right? You've, you've tracked with me that far? I'm told that's an Americanism. That's okay. You've tracked with me that, this far, right? It's not about salvation, but about whether we have served Christ properly in light of being saved. This is not about how we get into heaven. This is about the proper standards for expressing our gratitude to our Savior. But what is your response to that? Think hard about your own heart right there. Because do you feel like that just lets you entirely off the hook? Who cares? It's not about if I get into heaven. Just because your salvation doesn't depend on faithfulness according to this passage, do you think that that is grounds to dismiss the whole thing? Are you interested only in the things that get you into God's kingdom? Because we as Christ's people should be interested in things that magnify His name. The response is that we should be seeking submission to God's Word in all things as an act of ongoing sanctification. That brings us to our third point, the reward. So the first point looked at how this passage exhorts us to consider the the standards we use to measure the church's ministry. And the second thought about how we might consider these same points in reference to the authority of Scripture as a point regarding our submission in sanctification. We considered how we should not measure ourselves by our own standards, since in fact Christ who will return it is in fact Christ who will return to pronounce judgment. We should not presume to take upon ourselves to pronounce judgment about ourselves before Christ's return since he is the only one who has the authority to do so. (coughs) I get 
that there's probably a lot of people here, some people here at least, who think it's a really easy thing, or it's really easy to take that as a scary thing that Christ returns to pronounce judgment. And if you're not a Christian, then Christ's return to pronounce judgment and indeed should be scary. Those who are not joined to Christ by faith will be in every sense at the last day assessed by their works. To be measured entirely by our deeds as the ground of whether or not we will stand right with God for eternity is devastating. But if you are a Christian, you actually should rejoice that it is Christ who pronounces judgment upon you. It actually should be of immense comfort that Christ, not you, especially not your friends, especially not your enemies, Christ will order the state of affairs on the last day. Now, why should that be of comfort? Paul answers that question in the book of Romans. So we read in chapter 5 where it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And later, since, therefore, we have now been justified, declared righteous, by Christ's blood. Listen to the logic of this. This is a really important verse. Since we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Because if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more. Do you hear the increase? Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You know, I, as I've spoken to people throughout the week, um, I'm always really hesitant to depart from my notes, so forgive me, but I just feel like this is really necessary. So I've spoken to people throughout the week, and I've spoken to people yesterday and even this morning. It has struck me that it has been a really difficult week for a lot of people. Whether that be because of things at work that are overwhelming you, whether that be because of sin that you need to address, whether that be because of loss, uh, whether that be because of things taken for us, whether that be for unexplicable reasons, even. I do indeed know that there are many of us who are struggling right now. And there's not a lot that can be said to make that go away in an ultimate sense. We are promised suffering. But there is something that I hope can lift our heads and put us above that. Indeed, we can get so caught up and the things that are around us, the things that weigh us down. And it can be physical or spiritual attack. But even as we're about to sing, 
I mean, some amazing words here. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast, beyond all measure, that He would give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. And we do know that our Lord Jesus Christ walked this earth and lived the perfect life. And the closing words of this song always strike me as amazing. Why should I gain from His reward? The things that He earned, that He deserved. Why should we have them? And we just go back to the title. Because of the Father's deep, deep love for us. In whatever situation, in whatever dire providence we might have, how deep the Father's love for us. And I think Paul takes us very directly into that as he wrote in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? All of these obstacles that weigh us down. What shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. That Christ will be the one to announce judgment at the last day. And that is good news for Christians because Christ has already won your verdict. God is the one who justifies and for all who have taken hold of Christ by faith, a positive verdict already belongs to you. God, not you, not your friends, not your bosses, is the one who justifies. And He has justified all those who belong to Jesus Christ. Our persons are as secure for heaven, which frees us to serve God now without fear of coming short in our relationship with Him. Indeed, the reward, and why should we gain from Jesus' reward? The reward is that Jesus earned heaven by His own perfect obedience for you, despite how you don't deserve it. And we gain from His reward when we cling to Him by faith. Let's go to Him in prayer. Father God, we do try our best to live for You in this world. And we know that we fall extremely short. And we pray that in that, You would help us. That last day, You would find even our miserable, measly, 
sin-stained labors worthwhile and pleasing in your sight. That you would be pleased with them as we did indeed want to magnify your name. We pray that you would be of comfort to your people who are in deep need. And we pray as we tie this back to our passage, we pray that we as the church would do well in helping your people. We are thankful that we are a congregation, that we are a group knit together in the Lord Jesus, and that we have one another. And so we pray that we would do well to one another, and that namely we would do well in pointing one another to Jesus. Fill us with that hope in whatever way we might need it. And we pray these things in the precious name of Christ. Amen.